from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. In the summer of 1992, my friends and I shot a road movie on the streets of Singapore that was to become a kind of urban legend. That's filmmaker Sandy Tan narrating at the beginning of her terrific new documentary. That movie was called Shirkers, a word which means running away, avoiding responsibility, escape. I wrote the script and played the heroine, a 16-year-old killer named S. Her new documentary is kind of a making-of film, but it's about that film that never got finished. And that's because right after her movie wrapped 26 years ago, her director and mentor, a mysterious guy named Georges Cardona, just disappeared along with every frame of film. Her doc is called Shirkers, same name as the original feature, and earlier this year it won a Best Directing Award at the Sundance Film Festival, and it is now just rolling out on Netflix. When Sandy Tan came into Studio 360, I asked her how she became such a movie obsessive as a kid in Singapore in the 1980s. I guess I would say Keanu Reeves was my gateway drug. Um, so I hassled the, the Singapore Film Society into showing like River's Edge or something when I was like 14. And But, you know, I wound up staying and watching Fellini. And Fellini, Eight and a Half, was, was the thing kind of led me down another rabbit hole. On, and just boring enough then to allow me time to daydream, which is I think is a, really important for films to right. do for you as a teenager. So so by the time you were born there, you could buy tapes, right, of films? Um, you could could not. It was very, very difficult to look for movies. So you had to go across the causeway to Malaysia to look for pirated movies. And then I had a cousin in Florida. And so I had her, you know, rent the movies I want to see, like uh, Wild at Heart and um, Blue Velvet, things like that. And then she would put them all on this one VHS that, you know, in those days you could tape them at triple speed. So there was like three movies on one tape. And then when you watch them when they arrive at your house, um, because they taped at triple speed, they're kind of fuzzy. And you're watching them and they have this kind of mythic um, religious quality to, to, to them when you're watching them as a teenager, like after it's been shipped to your house and you put it onto your VC and watched it like a late at night and it's got this kind of, I don't know, it had its effect on me, I guess, yeah. these movies did. But you seemed like, I was going to say, one of the interesting things is describing these young teenage girls in Singapore being the what seemed like the coolest, punkiest geeks in town, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the coolest, punkiest geeks in retrospect. Right. Um, you know, nobody was thinking we were so there. We were completely isolated. I was completely alone in my tastes and my pursuits. We had a small core of friends um, who were all into the same thing. But then... So you weren't glamorous. No, we were not glamorous. I mean, we seem like that now because right. nobody else was doing that. But back then we were like, you know, there was nobody around like us and we it felt intensely lonely. And then I, I did a zine called The Exploding Cat just so I could invent my own internet. Exploding Cat? Yeah. The Exploding Cat when I was 16. Right. Um, it was meant to be a kind of a Dadaist 
zine. But when you try to do Dada in 1988, it winds up looking like a punk scene. Right. I wasn't I wasn't really a punk. And so there were no other sixteen Dadas but you and your friends in Singapore in nineteen eighty eight? Yeah, maybe just me and but yeah. Yeah. And you wrote for an underground rock paper. I mean there it was a scene, a bit. A small it was a, scene. Yeah, a small scene, yeah. Uh, so not only do you watch a lot of movies, you, you decide to take a filmmaking class. I assume this wasn't in high school. You had to go somewhere else to do this. And... Um this was right after high school uh-huh. and, and um before college and then that gap where anything can happen. It so happened that in Singapore, this very strange man named George Cardona um, was giving Singapore's first ever 16-millimeter filmmaking class. Really? Yeah. So it's 1992, you're 18, and having taken his 16-millimeter filmmaking course and hung out with him and your friends, decide you're going to make a feature film. Yeah, and I I wrote this thing um, called Shirkers. I showed it to George, the first draft, by the way, and George said, let's go out and do this. I mean, how many grown-ups in Singapore are you, you going right. to ever meet who who kind of says that kind of thing, who believes in you and doesn't judge you and, and you know, yell at you, which is what most grown-ups in Singapore right. are used to doing. And you know. So here's this 40-something white guy who says he's American, but who knows, and he loves the same art house and indie films you love. Did you look at him as, wow, this dude's praising me and saying, let's go make a movie together. Fantastic. But did you think, wow, what a what a sketchy, curious character? Um, what a curious character. You know, like the optics, as people would say, wasn't great. He was my best friend. We right. would sit in his car for hours um, at night and just talking about movies. I mean, just talking. And, you know, like nobody could understand that, but... I, you know, I just thought the rules didn't apply. I mean, you you finally right. have found this this grown up who really was like a teenage girl. I right. thought, and one of us, <laughs> um, and you know, and he was non threatening, the right. best storyteller I ever met to this day. I, right. I you know, if if he George walked in again and said, "Let's go make a movie," I would be like, "Okay, let's do this again." Yeah. Um, you know, and it's that kind of thing where I don't think of him as a villain. I think of him as a very strange friend, and his this friendship was both a gift and a curse. Um, so, making this movie, talk about the logistics. I mean, you spent money and you had real cameras and film and and cast people. Yeah, it was it was micro budget um, because Sophie and Jasmine, my friends, managed to talk Kodak into getting us free film, sixteen millimeter film. It was like, oh, we just want to play. We're just trying to learn filmmaking. Can, do you have any spares to? Yeah, yeah. And then we tried every tactic, you know, like, and then they just like threw us stuff just to to you know, send us away. And there was like um, free equipment as well. And Sophie and Jasmine managed to get that, I think. And then we stole, we hijacked buses. We got those for free. And then we had this network of friends who were willing to work for free. Uh-huh. And so like our, our clapper boy was 13 years old. Um, he was a history teacher's son. And, you know, we had free labor in the form of children. It was like, you know, Bugsy Malone, like us <laughs> just running around the island, yeah. pulling off this this crazy thing. A hundred different actors in um, over 100 locations. I mean, I listed down, like, all these places I was obsessed with, like, old bakeries, um, railway tracks, which I sat on um, and almost got run over by a train during one of the shots. And all these places that I knew will not stay for long because Singapore was changing so quickly. I was going to school abroad. And every time I came home for the summer, like, everything was different. You were in college at the University of Canterbury. Yeah, and I I just, I just, awful place. But I, I just, I just had to you know, find a form in which I could, you know, capture everything. Like for not just for us, but for everyone around us who saw Singapore in a very boring light. And I 
and George and I just you know drove around, always looking for interesting places and and faces. We we well, we it's found, interesting yeah. about Singapore because it seems the public intent of its presentation is so determinedly modern and rigorous and straight ahead and straight up. Although, despite all that, it's a weird place, and you were trying to show it's weird. Yeah, this is the counter narrative. And so you finish shooting. Great, we did it. And you wait to hear from George. What's going on? What's going on? And poof. And poof. Um, you he, know, he disappears. He disappears. But it, I mean, really disappears forever. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a complicated thing of trying to track him down. And the thing is, you know, in those days, the internet barely existed. We were three kids in three different right. cities in the world. I was in England. Jasmine was in New York. Sophie was in All going LA, to college. All going to college. And he had splintered us. Um, we were no longer a united friend that could go after him. Right. And, you know, the thing is, um, so George... When he took the reels, and this might be a spoiler, but he kept them in his a room in his house as if it was like a captive, like a kidnapped person. It was like a part of me, I guess, right. um, metaphorically speaking. Um, so he left a black hole in our lives. And I think one right. of the ways he creates, um, George creates by kind of leaving behind absences. You know, and he just wanted to be remembered by that black hole because he wasn't a creative guy. He didn't create. He left holes and, and, and people remember him through those holes. Right. So fast forward 20 years uh, after this episode that had haunted you and, and ruined friendships. Out of the blue, the, the, the pieces of film suddenly show up on your doorstep. What were your emotions? I was like, I approached it with so much trepidation because I knew that as soon as they opened up these boxes, um, they were like Pandora's boxes. They would just kind of suck me down some kind of dark rabbit hole from which I might never emerge and it might, you know, you know, like, I don't know, I would be obsessed with this right. thing. So I, I, I knew I had to be ready before I could open up these boxes and look at them. And, and so I didn't actually open those boxes for three years. And they sat in my living what? room. What? You're a nut. <laughs> you didn't open them for three years? Do you, you don't say that in the documentary, do you? I, no, because, I mean, it's there, it, that's a, such a digression. Um, but I did yeah, not open Yeah, but you're like buried the lead. Well, wow. I, I just, you know, I just couldn't, like, I was growing up. I, I had a new life. Yeah. And I knew that this thing would just wow. suck me into this huh. black hole. Well, and here, we are, here we are seven years later talking about it. But did you pretty immediately think you ought to turn the, the whole story of the film into a documentary? No, because I had to, you know, 16 millimeter film was incredibly hard to see. I do not have a Steenbeck. I didn't have the equipment. I had to take it to a lab in, in Burbank, California to, to get it digitized so I could look at it. And you have to get it digitized if you're going to do anything with it right. anyway. And I sat next to this colorist and we had worked on the Criterion Blu-rays of uh, Douglas Sirk movies. So he knew about color and I wanted somebody who knew about color. And his jaw just dropped and I thought, okay, here was a stranger who knew nothing about the story, knew nothing about Singapore and just huh. thought this footage itself was amazing. Just as a hidden artifact that yeah. had been in a time capsule. Yeah, and they didn't believe, they almost didn't believe me that this this was like more than 20 years old because George had wrapped every single reel up in black plastic. The reels were pristine because he's a crazy fella. Um, and, you know, when we watched the footage and I, I, I thought, oh, you know, like I had to set aside all vanity of seeing myself uh, giving this horrible performance because here was like amazing production design right. that we all pulled together, all these amazing places and faces. And, and, and you know, and it's act- 20, 25 years later, so who cares that you're a gawky 18 year old? And, and, yeah. and there were grown ups in the film that we cast that were giving amazing performances who, you know, would never be acknowledged as actors. Some of them thought they might have been actors. They had all their possible futures taken away from them. It wasn't just mine, it was everybody else's. And I thought, 
you know, we had to do something about it because it wasn't just about me. Right. Well, I, I'm very glad you made it because it's excellent. Such a, a one-of-a-kind story uh, of what, in retrospect, coulda, shoulda, maybe would have been the first art house indie film to come out of Singapore in the 90s, right? It might have been. Had we put this together, um, it would have it would have been something. It would not have been a masterpiece. Right. It would have been a risk-taking little something. But again, in, in the imagining what could have been, one could imagine, you know, some critic at the Village Voice seeing this weird Singaporean movie and go, look at this young genius. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe not young genius, but um, but, but they might have thought, what an interesting, odd thing. And, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it would have changed, I mean, a lot of people other than me think this, that it might have changed the course of Singapore um, cinema or right. film history because people would have thought, yeah, let's go out and make something fun and, and take risks and you can do this. I mean, basically, right. this is a bunch of kids with no, you know, no resources and they just went out and just did this thing. So you could have modeled that, that gorilla approach. Yeah, yeah. And, and people might have had more fun and more of a sense of humor, right. which I think they sorely lack in yeah. that part of the world. And yeah. as one of my friends, uh, Philip Chia, who's a film critic uh, from that part of the world, um, you know, he said that could have been the moment we should have seized uh, in Singapore. But in fact, the energy went off to like the Philippines and in Indonesia, and they went off to make more interesting indie films, whereas Singapore just did not. As one sees all these scenes of this unmade, unfinished, uh, potentially groundbreaking film from 25 years ago, I-, I thought of Wes Anderson as well. You know, not many years after you made your original film, Shirkers, his breakthrough film, Rushmore, came out, which is a kind of cinematic cousin. Young, yeah. young people, bright colors, Very uh, much statu- so. you know, stylized shots. Uh, that must have felt a little bittersweet. I had goosebumps watching Rushmore. I, I just, you know, there that emphasis on primary colors, um, youthful heroes, the the young person who has these these strange friendships with older people, you know, precocity, I guess. What's the secret, Max? The secret? Yeah, well, you seem to have it pretty figured out. Secret? I don't know. I, I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. It's going to Rushmore. That's Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray in uh, Wes Anderson's Rushmore from 1998. When I was watching the film, I was like, oh my God, that's what we were going for. <laughs> but I had no one to tell. I mean, nobody would believe me. I would just sound so grandiose. Yeah. And that was really frustrating for me. And again, when I saw Ghost World, that I felt the same thing. It was the same kind of palette of colors, the right. slightly offbeat humor and, and poker faced humor. You were like the luckiest guy in the world. I would kill to have stuff like this. Please, go ahead and kill me. Oh, come on. What are you talking about? Well, you you think it's healthy to obsessively collect things? You can't connect with other people, so you fill your life with stuff. Just like all the rest of these pathetic collector losers. That's Ghost World, uh, Thora Birch and uh, Steve Buscemi, uh, 2001. Your film... uh, from a decade earlier, uh, is less realistic, but about this schoolgirl serial killer, uh, kind of a kindred indie comedy sensibility. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, if it didn't have a sense of humor, it wouldn't be fun. Right. And there's a kind of uh, deadpan surrealism that I associate more with modern American indiness. Yeah, like Jarmusch. Um, Yeah. So Jarmusch is a big influence, right? um, well, like visually, say. And I want to I pause, if we can, on Jarmish, who, who, who is, there is a kind of 
never belly laugh, mm. but comic undertone yes. to his whole thing. What particular uh, movies of his did you love? Um, I, I think it was generally um, maybe there was a bit of the, um, the look of um, Mystery Train. And then there was, you know, in the, um, you know, some of the colors. That this movie's brimming with like bright colors and totally. primary colors, yeah. and we were going for something vivid that was completely uh, in opposition to sterile, um, you know, just gray Singapore, um, Singapore of responsibility in school and business and right. offices. Um, so there was a bit of John Waters as well. Um, a lot of the American indie aesthetic we were going to. We, we and, and you know, recently um, a friend of mine was friends with Jay Rabinovitz, who I think um, edits Dramish's films, and he saw some of the footage and his jaw dropped because he thought there was some collective unconscious, you know, some something that was going on where these kids in this, this very distant part of the world were doing something that kind of looked like they were trying for something that, that people in America were doing at the same time. Right. No, it is like an alternate history that has been suppressed, at least to me, and to everybody but your friends mm-hmm. and you until now. Um, but but it is like a like a weird natural experiment of global culture that there you were, this kid in in Singapore, feeding off the same influences, zeitgeist, fumes or whatever as these directors in America Mm -hmm. at at the turn of the century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it really feels like that, right? It does. It does really feel like like that to me. Like you you are this experiment that there is such a thing as a global zeitgeist. Yeah, yeah. Um, So... You get the film back. Uh, you made this documentary. You had some kind of uh, reunion with your friends. Mystery solved. Found out who George was. Uh, Netflix is showing this doc. It's good. Happy ending. Um, yeah, I think it's it's like that to me is like the stranger than fiction aspect of it. I mean, this is like one small little event in the smallest country in the world that happened a long time ago. Um, the strange little aberrant incident and now this this story of this thing is going to be shown like in the largest possible um, venue I guess 195 countries in 25 languages like I mean how crazy is that like yep. this kid in Bhutan who might be hurting his his goats could watch this on his cell phone I mean yep. I, I want people to see this thing and see that they can do this I mean like, no matter where they're from or right. you know small places right. and you know just to see this thing I just find that so surreal right uh, what a delight. Uh, speaking with you. Oh, thank you so much. This was so fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. You can watch Sandy Tan's documentary Shirkers on Netflix. Coming up, the novelist and perfumer Thani Nandini Islam walks me through the making of a scent based on Toni Morrison's novel Beloved. I definitely walked away with wanting to create the sense of rain, mud, mother's milk, blood. I try to resist the pun, but sorry, scent and sensibilities. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Base notes are viscous, woodsy, long-lasting notes that tend to wear on the skin and stay on the skin. This is Thani Nandini Islam, a perfumer and writer who, like all writers and all artisanal perfumers, lives in Brooklyn, New York. The heart note is basically the heart of the perfume. It's the the main story. And then for the, the top, you have the most volatile 
easily evaporated notes that invite you, call you into the story. It's like the, in, like the first flirtation into the story. Bunny has published one well-received novel, Bright Lines, and is working on her second. But as a perfumer, she also concocts ephemeral stories of a kind for her fragrance and beauty business called High Wildflower. And we had heard that she recently experimentally merged those two parts of her life, creating scents, scented candles, in fact, inspired by contemporary novels. We wanted to see and smell how that works, how she transmutes literature into a perfume. So we asked Thunny if she'd create a literature-inspired scent just for us and walk us through that process. You're probably familiar with the book she picked, Toni Morrison's 1987 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Beloved. 124 was spiteful, full of a baby's venom. The women in the house knew it, and so did the children. For years, each put up with the spite in his own way. But by 1873, Sapha and her daughter, Denver, were its only victims. Beloved is a magical, realist ghost story set in Ohio after the Civil War. It's about this former slave named Setha, her daughter Denver, her long-dead other daughter, Beloved, and her complicated past. I went with Thunny to her apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, so I could watch and smell as she created this literary perfume. We're sitting at a wooden table where Thunny has dozens of glass bottles. They're tiny, an ounce or so apiece. Some clear, some dark brown, all with black caps. Very old-time apothecary. These are the concentrated scents. Smells derived from flowers and trees and nature, and some of them synthetic ones. Chemical recreations of pretty much any smell imaginable. Okay, I need to just get in my zone for one second. She's also got a stack of special paper strips that she uses to sample and sniff each scent, each note, as she says, putting a drop of the liquid on one end of the paper and then scribbling the name of that scent on the other end. As she builds toward the perfume, she'll fan the strips out in her hand, adding new ones, removing others, and occasionally wave them under her nose to decide how they work together. So with the, this beloved mm-hmm. uh, ascent, h- how do you begin? Do you, did you read the book again? Oh, yeah. yeah. I wanted to read the book. I ha- always have my little journals to write notes in. And I was just like, I'm just going to write down what touches me. And that's it. And I literally just page after page of just old factory notes. Because I want to not just make this out of my own ideas. I mean, I think the ego needs to kind of disappear when you're making any work of art to let love and life in. So I was like, I just want to know what she had to say. As for the rest, she worked hard to remember as close to nothing as was safe. Unfortunately, her brain was devious. She might be hurrying across a field, running practically, to get to the pump quickly and rinse the chamomile sap from her legs. 
So the first note that popped out of page six was she might be hurrying across a field and the sap from the chamomile on her legs. And so I have chamomile. And this is blue chamomile. And you'll see how blue it is because of the azulene. It almost looks black. So that scent of chamomile is just so invigorating and intoxicating. But the sap, you can smell the sappiness of it, the sweetness of it, the honeyness of it. It's like food. I mean, you want to eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Like tea. So I wanted, so that's one note that came up for me. Nor was there the faintest scent of ink or the cherry gum and oak bark from which it was made, nothing. As you're reading it, Seth is really talented at making ink. So I really wanted to kind of get into the more woodsy notes. Ink would be made with like cherry gum, oak bark, like things that are really thick and viscous. So I have this blood red cedar. You'll see how inky that is. And it's just like... Jeez. Smells sort of How's that nose doing? <laughs> dangerous. It's fine. But it smells like something that, you know. So you see that color. It would have skull and crossbones down. on the bottle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Given that, again, the nature, the overall nature of the novel, apart from individual scenes of running into chamomile, mm-hmm. did, you be, did you begin and do you begin by saying, oh, there's ghostly things that go on in this uh, novel? Mm-hmm. And, you know, does that inform the sense you choose to make it? So I definitely walked away with wanting to create the sense of rain, mud, mother's milk, blood. So those are the notes. So whatever makes it smell like those four things is the perfume we're going to get. Okay. So that's where we're going. Okay, So to me, this is already having like a rainy, muddy, earthy moment. I'll buy that. I'll totally buy that. Right? Yep. So now let's go in a different direction. And suddenly, there was Sweet Home, rolling, rolling, rolling out before her eyes. And although there was not a leaf on that farm that did not make her want to scream, it rolled itself out before her in shameless beauty. It never looked as terrible as it was, and it made her wonder if hell was a pretty place too. So I have some grass options. So grass, to me, really evokes Sweet Home, where she had been enslaved by the Garners. So I have Sweet Grass, and this, to me, has that kind of nostalgic... Sweet Home being the plantation. Yes, has that nostalgic quality. Oh, yeah. That's a very... I mean, this is the most completely pleasant scent yeah. you, you, you've, you've wafted near me. And it's a heart note, so it's a little bit lighter. You have more space to So everything is classified as heart or base, base or, top? or top? yeah. Oh. Oh. And then there's this one moment where her lover, Sethi's lover, Paul D., he had kind of escaped into Delaware, found this woman, the first black woman whose house he could get into and became lovers with her. Later, when he saw pale cotton sheets and two pillows in her bedroom. He had to wipe his eyes quickly, quickly, so she would not see the thankful tears of a man's first time. Soil, grass, mud, shucking, leaves, hay, cobs, seashells, all that he'd slept on. White cotton sheets, 
had never crossed his mind. Paul D. describes the comfort of laying in hay uh, as the only comfort he'd known before he understood what it felt like to sleep in some cotton sheets. So I was just kind of interested in finding something that would hint at that hay note because I think hay is a little bit more evocative as a scent. Yeah. Wow, that's... So that's natural. It's hay. It's, it's really hay-like. Mm-hmm. Then she did the magic, lifted Setha's feet and legs and massaged them until she cried salt tears. That really, for me, when Amy Denver, the white woman who I guess is an indentured servant, she basically rubs Seth's feet and makes her cry. And I was like, oh, the bomb of someone rubbing your feet when you're beaten and being chased by evil white people and you need sucker and, and this woman is giving it to you, this horrible woman who's kind of racist to you is giving it to you. It's really deep, you know? So I was like, we need to have that moment. So tears, I wanted to produce tears. So I have two accords. Accord means like accord, basically? A, yeah. a small combination? Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Three, mm. Two to five. This is salt, clean. I don't really know what makes it clean. I love it. And this is dry salt. They're not natural, they're aroma chemicals. And this is sort of sweeter, what is it? Um, that one, so we did salt, uh, clean salt, and this is dry salt. So this is a little bit more dry on the nose. I had milk, she said. I was pregnant with Denver, but I had milk for my baby girl. I hadn't stopped nursing her when I sent her on ahead with Howard and Bugler. Anybody could smell me long before he saw me. It's very hard to, I mean, you can create milk and recreate mother's milk, but I wanted to kind of bring a different spin to it. So that is jasmolactone. So anytime oh. there's the word lactone, obviously, in an aroma chemical, there's a milky hmm. note, but it's with jasmine. So it's this milky, buttery, uh, waxy plausible. jasmine. It, definitely buttery, waxy. I get that. This is a natural isolate called gamma dodecalactone. Kind of fruity. Yeah, and a little buttery. And then the carnival is experience that the three characters, Seth, Paul, D, and Denver, have to kind of broker a peace accord between Paul, D, and Denver. So this scene, there's so many notes um, in, the, in that section you know, horsehound, licorice, peppermint, lemonade, sweetbread, honey, beeswax, molasses, taffy. I mean, that's all in a carnival. And when you go to a carnival, it does feel like that. You're like candied apples, funnel cake. So I think it, it really is one of the moments of levity in the book. The happy one was Paul D. He said howdy to everybody within 20 feet. Made fun of the weather and what it was doing to him, yelled back at the crows and was the first to smell the doomed roses. And yet this undertone of rotten roses. The closer the roses got to death, the louder their scent, and everybody who attended the carnival associated it with the stench of the rotten roses. It made them a little dizzy and very thirsty, but did nothing to extinguish the eagerness of the colored people filing down the road. 
so good. It's like death is right yeah. there. So to me, the artificial rose, which is not as good as the real rose, I think has that kind of like overly ripe rose scent where it's so good it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. So that's a rose. That's really nice. Yeah. I, you know, I just wear that by itself. So this is the the one that really made me think, okay, carnival, rotten rose. Sure. Okay, so this is, um, well, why don't you smell it and tell me? I'm, I just like to know what people think when they... Mm. It's more, it's I would suppose cinnamony and metallic and I don't know, what is it? It's honey accord. So this to me really draws into Beloved when she comes back uh, as this... Spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. I mean, if you haven't read it, please read it today it's her obsession with sweet stuff and honeyed Mm. things so for me honey milk you know mother's milk honey rose that's the heart of this story that's the beauty of this story it's a mother-daughter story i wanted to incorporate african notes to pay homage to the place where people were stolen from the notes that i have from africa are african bluegrass so i want you to compare that to the sweet grass the american sweet grass oh wow God, I love all these grass and hay ones. So that's like my way of creating a little accord mm-hmm. with the sweet grass to kind of bring the American sweet grass and the African bluegrass together. So then we take the salt and then you smell these three together and you're going to like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're already feeling it and then you're getting excited and you're like, okay, I can. I, this is a great yeah. perfume. I'm feeling yeah. it. So then we want to deepen this because it's a little too light and bright. So then we want to get this blood cedar. So you're getting this light, bright grass salt, and it ends in this deep, viscous, like, cedar note. Yeah. So then I'm going to add the mother's milk component. Funny is building toward the first draft of her beloved perfume. She adds another scent to the group and, and smells, and then another and smells again until she's got about 10 sticks. I think we got it. Okay. Hold it like that okay. and just smell it. Okay. She hands me the, the bouquet of strips. I flick them around under my nose. And yes, all those very distinct components do kind of miraculously coalesce into a cohesive, complex scent. So that's our perfume for Beloved. That's great. To me, the most salient factor that I'm going after is the energy of the book which is ghostliness ascension and to me rain and mud and blood like going to the materials evokes that you know we as writers we're always grappling with like is this dead and pointless you know so I think of course Miss Morrison's work will never be dead and pointless but does it live on in every capacity so to me this is like a heightened form of fan fiction almost you know it's just an homage to great in a in a novel, but also like going sentence by sentence to extricate the most beautiful olfactory moments is like such a pleasure for me. You can find Thani Nandini Islam's fragrances, candles, and other products at highwildflower.com, and her novel Bright Lines at booksellers. Excerpts from the audiobook of Beloved were read by Toni Morrison. Coming up. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. 
the song where everybody knows the words, but not many are sure what they mean. A thousand people can read the Bible and you'll get a thousand different opinions on what it means. American Pie, a thousand people can hear the song. You'll get a thousand different interpretations of what each line means. Chevys, levees, and other components of Don McLean's American Pie. That's next on Studio 360. I couldn't take one more step. Studio 360. It was 1971 when the basically unknown singer-songwriter Don McLean released his song, American Pie. Today, 47 years later, everybody still seems to know the words, but nobody seems to know what they're supposed to mean. Who is the jester who sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean? And what was it that touched him deep inside the day the music died? To tell the story of that song and decode some of its mysteries, our story begins by going straight to the source. I did not want to have a job where I had a boss. That was my main goal in life. I just wanted to be free of anyone telling me what to do. My name is Don McLean, and I'm a singer and a songwriter. And I've never had any job but as a paperboard in 1959. When I opened those papers and saw that my man, Buddy Holly, had been killed, I was very sensitive. And I carried this burden with me for a long, long time. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valen, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Bopper. But February made me shiver with every paper I deliver. The aircraft chartered from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City, ironically the setting for the prominent musical The Music Man. Their small chartered plane crashed in a lonely farmyard about 15 miles northwest I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day The music died Travis Holly, he looked a lot like Buddy, he was tall, Texan and he said, uh, Don, when I heard your song, I pulled the car over and jumped for joy. And so everybody got the connection, even though I didn't say anything, between Buddy's death and American Pie. The idea of a 13-year-old kid seeing his hero die in a plane crash, that's something that people give weight to. I'm Raymond I. Shuck, and the name of the book that I co-edited with my father, Ray Shuck, is Do You Believe in Rock and Roll? Essays on Don McLean's American Pie. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing this'll be the day that I die. This will be the day that I die. It tells a story of what happened to rock and roll from its beginnings in the late 1950s 
and how much the narrator, Don McLean, loved the music and then how things developed over the 1960s. And by the end of the 1960s, he's disillusioned with where music has gone. It's America moving through a change from the black and white Eisenhower world into the more complex 1960s and beyond. American Pie was uh, written, recorded in 1971. So it's right, you know, at the end of the 1960s as a decade, looking back and, oh, I remember back when things were simpler, back when things were better. Look at the time period. There were a lot of things going on that did this. Roger Kahn's book, Boys of Summer, that looked back at the Brooklyn Dodgers who left Brooklyn for L.A. in the late 1950s. That came out in 1972. Grab that special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine. Cruise downtown and catch American Graffiti. The movie American Graffiti comes out in 1973. Sunday, Monday, happy Days Days shows up on television in 1974. This is a time where... Especially for that generation, they're looking back and saying, we love this music. This is as American as it gets. And American Pie was a song that really captured that. What happened when American Pie hit? It was a phenomenon. As soon as the song came out, people were asking, what's it about? Do you think they analyze your songs too much with looking for things in it that you never wrote? Oh, for sure. People want to find things anywhere they can find them. People are searching for someone to lead them. What are the other things that Don McLean mentions? We know the Buddy Holly references at the beginning of the song. And then it's, okay, now, given that, what can this mean? What can this mean? What was going on in 1963 and 1969? Then looking at interviews with Don McLean, looking through liner notes, looking through anything that might give a clue that could help fill in the gaps for what the song means. It was weird because it wasn't a press agent out saying, this is about Buddy Holly, you know. Who was I to think that everything, aspect of what I was thinking would actually be thought about and dissected and discussed. And this has been going on for decades. In an interview with Casey Kasem, he led on that when he refers to the jester. When the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean in a voice that came from you and me. The jester is Bob Dylan. the tambourine man play a song for me I'm not sleepy and there's no place I'm going to one point he mentions the king oh and while the king was looking down the jester stole his thorny crown the courtroom was adjourned now Elvis is the king but the man who can sing when he hasn't got a thing he's a king when he refers to the devil later on. As I watched him on the stage, my hands were clenched in fists of rage. No angel born in hell could break that Satan's spell. That involves Altamont Speedway in 1969 and the Rolling Stones concert there and the violence that happened there where Hell's Angels was providing security. One man was killed. And the idea that the hope of Woodstock that summer, it's over with Altamont. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth. Probably the most dissected lyric in the last verse when he talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the three men I admire most, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, they caught the last train for the coast. 
hundreds of theories out there. This is Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and John F. Kennedy, who had all been killed in the 1960s, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Pete Seeger, and Woody Guthrie. These were all significant influences on McLean. The other members of Buddy Holly's band, The Crickets, all kinds of different views on that. You know, it's been the story of American Pie for a lot of my life. That's the stuff people want to talk about. That's the song people want to talk about. But I don't hold it against them. As I've gotten older, actually, it's become something that I'm thankful for because I'm 72 years old and, you know, people still like something that I did. My name is Garth Brooks. I'm an entertainer. Well, that's kind of said loosely, yes. When I first started playing music, probably in college, you would close the bar down every night and usually the song you would pick for everyone to sing along with at the end of the night was American Pie. And so you just kept playing it and kept playing it. How long does it go? Well, as recently as a week ago, I played American Pie. A thousand people can read the Bible and you'll get a thousand different opinions on what it means. American Pie, a thousand people can hear the song. You'll get a thousand different interpretations of what each line means. But what we'll all agree on American Pie is for some reason, we love that song. We got to play a gig in Central Park for HBO in 1997. And then I thought I'd end it by asking uh, Don McLean to come out and do American Pie. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honor and a great privilege, Mr. Don McLean. When he walked out, I went, holy cow, this guy looked beautiful, all in black. Sing the chorus again. Those people ate it with a fork and spoon. I'd easily put it in my top five greatest moments ever to be on stage. A long, long time ago, there have been various versions of the song. There have been various parodies of the song. Madonna didn't do a parody of it, but she did a version of the song. In 1999, when Star Wars Episode One came out, Weird Al Yankovic did a version of the song called The Saga Begins. Oh my, my, this here Anakin guy Maybe Vader someday later Now he's just a small fry And he left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye Saying soon I'm gonna be a Jedi it gives us a framework for telling epic tales in a song. The day the NASDAQ died. That day, national health care died. The Twinkie died. And they're very good, very creative. Bye-bye, Mr. Stephen Hyde. I'm a hottie and you're naughty. Jackie's gonna be mine. She likes my brunette. Oh, Jackie Burkhart, you are so fine. Wrote that just for you, Jackie? You didn't write that. I just ripped it off from American Pie. Nuh-uh, the American Pie guy ripped me off. That's actually what happens when a song becomes a folk song. 
in a wonderful blessing of my life, some of my music has become folk music. And I don't think I could ask for any more than that. That's Don McLean talking about his song, American Pie. We also heard from Raymond I. Shuck and Garth Brooks. That story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. American Pie was recently inducted into the National Recording Registry by the Library of Congress. And you can hear dozens of other stories we've done about the important records in the National Recording Registry, such as Gloria Gaynor's single, I Will Survive, and George Carlin's comedy album, Class Clown. Those stories and many more are all on our website at studio360.org. Not a word was spoken The church bells all were broken And the three men I admire most The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost They caught the last train And that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Lauren Hansen. Evan Chung. Zoe Saunders. Sam Kim. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. I don't think of him as a villain. I think of him as a very strange friend. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. They were singing, bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye. Singing, this'll be the day that I die. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. We will sell no wine before it's time. The public perception of late Orson is kind of a has-been doing wine commercials. How those TV commercial gigs were funding Orson Welles' unfinished final passion project. He said, as an actor, I am a prostitute, but as a director, I remain virginal. Oscar-winning filmmaker Morgan Neville on Orson Welles. Next time on Studio 360. 